on America Can We Talk. I talk about election integrity, border security, healthcare freedom, race relations, energy and tax policy, education policy, free speech and assembly, freedom of religion, and all other issues that touch on the God-given right of every American to life, liberty, and the pursuit of their version of happiness. Stay tuned. your tolerance but lecture me is there no end to your own hypocrisy your god is power you have no shame your only interest is political gain you hide your eyes and refuse to listen you play your game. coming up next america can we talk with your host debbie georgianos And hello and welcome to America Can We Talk. I'm Debbie Georgiatis. Today on our show, we have a very special guest in studio, my favorite kind. Uh, we'll be interviewing Dr. Kenneth Price. He's the author of a book I have finished reading and I am truly blown away by. It's called Separated Together, the incredible true World War II story of soulmates stranded an ocean apart. It's a story he's written, a true story about his own in-laws. Great book. I also want to talk with you about It Matters Why Fox News Booted Tucker, Our Fight for America Today, GOP Fighting Climate Lunacy, and the Dangers of Hate Speech Legislation and Hate Crime Legislation. We will probably won't get to all that, but we're going to try. So there you go. That's what our, our plan is for today's show. Um, I will tell you uh, before we launch into our interview that I'm going to be talking with you after we're all finished uh, about a new project I have engaged in, and I want to tell you about it later. I'm just going to tease it now. It's called Patriot Switch. I'm just going to ask you to think about the number of times you come home from the grocery store or any other store and pick up an item and read the tag and it says Made in China. And you remember all of these organizations saying, you know, you should really try to buy things made in America. That's how we're going to keep America strong. We keep jobs in America. We keep manufacturing here. Well, this is what Patriot Switch is all about. I'm just going to tease that and I'll tell you about it later. So for our interview today, our show today, I want to talk with you about a gentleman. I'll show you his book first. He's here in the studio. Here's his book. Again, it's called Separated Together, The Incredible True World War II Story of Soulmates Stranded an Ocean Apart by Dr. Kenneth Price, PhD. This is what it looks like. Make sure I'm holding it correctly. That's what it looks like. It has my signature many stickies out of the side to mark the pages I want to talk about. But I will tell you that I met Dr. Price um, actually at a friend's birthday party. That's actually how it happened, at a friend's birthday party. And then again, other events. Uh, and Dr. Price is, lives here in Texas, but he uh, wrote a book that recounts the amazing story of his own wife's parents as they struggled through the Holocaust living in Poland, uh, in Warsaw, Poland, their life story. It is truly gripping. And we'll get into more detail in a moment, but I wanna say something else about the Holocaust. I know people who, um, you know, we have Holocaust Remembrance Day, we have other holidays where we're urged to remember the Holocaust. Many people have gone to Holocaust museums. My husband and I have been blessed to go to the one in Israel, the one in Washington, D.C., the one in Dallas. So we've been to numerous Holocaust museums. And sometimes it seems kind of painful to remind yourself again of how um, alarming the world was and, and just how horrific human behavior can be and we kind of want to shy away from it and i will tell you that i i forced myself to continue reading this book uh, and got through it it really does a great job of helping you visualize what life felt like and looked like living in this case living in poland in warsaw as the uh, as the german invasion began as the germans expanded their effort uh, in world war ii and I think it's important to have those memories, to have those pictures in your mind, because it really, in case you, I mean, you know, I was just thinking about this, it's not even 100 years ago. I mean, it's not like this horrific behavior occurred, you know, millennia ago. It's, it's in the lifetime of many people still alive today, and certainly in the memories of families who lost parents and grandparents and other relatives. And it isn't so much to dwell on the horror, although I think it's important to recognize it, is to, as a civilization, as a society, to decide and to really study what caused a society, what caused a leader to turn to this, what caused a society to permit it. And, and so we don't ever repeat those errors. We don't repeat those um, 
what seemed in some cases to be kind of the weakness of society, not willing to stand up against a leader who is engaged in just uh, just a horrific agenda and, and unfortunately achieved much of his agenda. So without further ado, I'll introduce and welcome to the show, Dr. Kenneth Price. Hi there. Hi, thank you very much for inviting me. I'm glad you're here. And you know, I um, we did meet at that birthday party. I won't say her name, but a mutual friend's birthday party. And then we saw each other at some other events as well. And I, I will repeat my praise for this book because it, it gives real historic data and a real picture of what life was like, not just a blur of all the, you know, a bunch of images of the camps, but kind of a day-to-day -day what the terror felt like, what felt like through the eyes and ears of uh, your mother-in-law. So I, I think it's an extraordinary book. Plus our story is extraordinary, uh, how they ended up uh, back together. So uh, I don't, I mean, this is, we talk about this before the show. We can talk about a lot in the book. It's not like a, like a mystery that ruins the end. We can tell a lot about it, right? Okay, so first of all, how long did it take you to write this? It took me about six years from beginning until the book was published. So a little bit under six years. Okay, well you have in here quotes, things that your mother-in-law wrote. And so how did you get a hold of that? Like, where, How was that saved up? Well, I was very lucky. There are people who say that their parents or grandparents never talked about the Holocaust. And, and they had no details about what the parents or grandparents went through. I was very lucky because my wife's Gloria, her, her parents were, were not the kind of people who only talked about the Holocaust and, and were obsessed with what they went through. On the other hand, they were not like some of the people who were so traumatized that they would never say a word. Gloria's parents um, wrote many things down, and I recall Gloria's father sitting at the, uh, um, the bridge table in their house on um, Blackheath Road in New York, and he was writing with a, a ballpoint pen on, on one of those long yellow tablets, mm -hmm. line tablets, and I, I read a couple of those stories, but I had long forgotten them. So uh, about seven or so years ago, I was organizing my study uh, under orders from my beloved wife, and, <laughs> and I, I came across- I'm sure it was a gentle request. <laughs> Yes, and, and I came across a box where I had put all of his uh, memorabilia. And I said, you know, I've been talking about writing this book for over 50 years since I met Gloria. And that's another story, which is a, a, a lovely story. And I'm getting older and I need to write this book because if I don't do it now, I'll never do it. So I, I started going through the stuff and realized that I had a, a, a treasure trove of essays that Abe had written in other documents. And then the internet is another wonderful um, device that, that we have now for finding things, finding details about uh, the, uh, a ship's manifest, for example, uh, when people came to the United States and so on. So a lot of research was, uh, I had to perform in order to write this book. The book is, is a biography, but it's not just a biography of two amazing people. It's, um, I call it a personal historical book at the suggestion of a friend of mine, a professor at Brown University, Omer Bartov, who wrote a similar book about his parents, um, whose town Buczacz was destroyed in Poland by the Nazis. And he writes um, a lot of history about what went on in Poland during the war. And he suggested to me, after looking at my manuscript, that I should call my book a personal historical book like his, and then it's a very personal story. It's an amazing story. It's an incredible story. And at the same time, put in background. Sad to say, even though almost everyone has heard of the Holocaust, most people don't know a lot about it. And what they do know often is wrong. So I thought here was an opportunity to present background, which is necessary to understand this wonderful story, um, and also to provide history that most people don't know. Personal historical, your third, what you were calling this a personal historical text? 
Well, it's a personal historical book. It's, okay. it's, it's nonfiction. Everything I write is 100% true. There's, there's, it's not a novel. It's not based. Oh, it's a true story. It is yes, not a it's true not life. based. It's, true. it's not a novel based on, on truth, which you'll see on, on many shows on TV. Everything in the book um, is, is documented. Um, when Gloria or I um, would ask Sonia and Abe questions, they would answer, and they both sat for interviews. Sonia's story is, is told on uh, many, many sites. Um, and so I, I reviewed all of the um, all of the videos that she had made, and all of the things she and Abe had written, and all the things I remembered hearing from them. Yeah, I love it. You actually have a, b a bunch of history about both their families, uh, even before the time that they met, and, and how they met. And this not worthy of this interview, but I will mention how lovely it is really to read about the society at the time uh, where courtship happened. It was the sweetest story of how your in-laws got together, which is not worthy because of, well, I want to talk about your recounting of the Holocaust, but you realize it was a, from an era of more genteel behavior by everybody. It was, it was quite lovely. Okay, so I, I meant to mention and introduce you. I'm sorry I did not for our happy listeners. Uh, I mentioned this is Dr. Kenneth Price. Uh, he is a clinical psychologist, uh, PhD in clinical psychology, um, certified and licensed psychologist in the state of Texas, great state of Texas, although he's educated in New York and Massachusetts. Um, and he also, he's done studies on hypertension in adolescents. Uh, just his work experience is extraordinary and extensive, but he has, he's a doctor of psychology, and um, which I think, um, I, I think that's probably helpful, odd to say, in thinking through behaviors that you're writing about in this book, that thinking through the way people behave and why they did. So let's just start with, with your in-laws story. So they are, they're in Warsaw and you know, as a, doesn't rule in the end to tell it, but I think it's interesting how, you know, so Sonia and Abe are married and they're very happily married. They are smittenly happily married, but, and, and they have a couple kids. And then just tell the story of how Abe ended up being in America as the Germans came into Warsaw and, and where, where um, Sonia was. Well, first I have to go back a little bit and, and talk about their, their personal history. Abe came from a very poor family. His father was a shoemaker, but not a very successful one. Um, and Abe, Abe recounts what it was like growing up in basically a, a one-room house with an outhouse and on the other hand, Sonia grew up in a very middle-class family with, with a home tutor for Sonia to uh, learn Hebrew, for example. She went to a Russian school where she learned Russian and living in Poland. She, of course, knew Polish. She was highly educated. Abe dropped out of school, I believe it was in fifth grade, so I imagine he was 10 or 11, in order to work to help support the family. Well. Abe's father wanted him to have a good trade, like become a watchmaker. And the story is that um, he took his son to the town's rabbi. And of course, if, if the rabbi said something and, and made a suggestion, it's more than a suggestion, that's the way it should be. So he tells the rabbi, I want my son to become a watchmaker. And the rabbi said, okay, Abe, what, what would you like? He said, I want to be a businessman like my father. The rabbi says to his father, David, well, if he wants to be a businessman, let him be a businessman. To make a long story short, by the time Abe was in his 20s, he was manufacturing shoes and was a millionaire and was now investing in real estate and building a big apartment building which stood until just a few years ago in Warsaw, Poland. And Sonia can trace one side of her family to Dov Beresh Meisels, a, a Jewish rabbi in, in the 19th century, who in the 1860s worked with Polish revolutionaries who were trying to throw off the Russian yoke. Uh, and on her other side, she was from the Yaglom clan, a very well-known family, in fact, Henry Yagom, a, a nephew of hers, is a famous Hollywood actor, editor, director, producer. So they came from, from very, very different families. 
have very different histories. And Sonia, um, one of the few girls at the time, went to college in Warsaw, and they met by chance, and that an, another young woman who was in the same school invited her to come to a Friday night dinner. And where was the Friday night dinner? It was at the apartment of Abe's sister. And that's where they met. And Abe writes and says that as soon as he met Sonia, he knew this was the woman for him. I'm going to talk her into marrying me. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I love that background. And actually, it's relevant uh, in part because, you know, her background, you know, as you say, not that many women were college educated with that kind of education and background to end up in the circumstance she did during the Holocaust was really, uh, um, uh, I mean, and, and to show the strength she did, which I want to get to how strong she obviously was, uh, was really a testament to her kind of core strength you know she just uh she was used to think being things being pretty nice uh and then she went through what she did in the holocaust so i'll just quickly summarize the story because i want to get the holocaust so the, these two meet and they finally marry uh we'll leave aside the girl who thought that abe wanted to marry her so anyway but uh, because that is funny but it's a life story so abe is successful after a life of relative uh, poverty growing up he's successful and he's talked into traveling to America by, I'm sorry, was it Sonia's cousin or somebody? Sonia's cousin. Oh yeah, we're going to go for six or seven weeks. And it was something about the World's Fair, but they're going to go to America. Sonia is on a break with their two children. They're two young children because uh, it was hot in Warsaw. They're down at the beach. Like everyone likes to go to the well, beach. The, the countryside. Countryside. Okay. That's a lake. Oh, 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 lake. Okay. Well, not the same as the beach then. You're right. Okay. Oh, anyway, she's not in town. And he, Abe, gets talked into going, or to seeking the permission to travel to America. I mean, what a, I mean, I don't know if you say fortuitous or what you call it, but he ended up leaving. You go ahead and tell the story. He goes over to America and. Yes, uh, he, was, he was persuaded by one of Sonia's cousins to go to the United States. And Abe had some wanderlust in him. He, he wanted to see the world. And New York City had a World's Fair at the time. And, and he said, well, I have to ask Sonia. And, and, and the cousin, um, Zalman, said, no, for God's sakes, don't ask <laughs> Sonia. No. She might say no. <laughs> so, so Abe, Abe wrote on, on one, of, one of his um, um, memoirs, he wrote, it's a good thing I'm not a girl because I could get talked into anything. <laughs> Yeah. So he went to Sonia, and, and she was so good. She was so kind. They had a six-week-old child, the, the second child, Lucia. And she said, okay. So Abe said, I'll go see the World's Fair, and I'll see your father. Sonia's father had actually gone to America a few years earlier. Also an interesting story we don't have to get in, into today. And he said, we'll only be gone seven weeks, then we'll, we'll be back. So he arrived in America August 2nd, 1939. Oh, my God. Well, what happened September 1st, 1939? That's when the Nazi Luftwaffe and um, Wehrmacht invaded Poland. So there were no, no ships traveling to a war zone at the time. Um, the war Meaning broke Abe out. Couldn't get back. He couldn't get back to Poland. Absolutely, yeah. he frantically looked for a way to get back to Poland, and he couldn't. And and he actually tried to get a visa to um, get Sonia and the children out of Poland to come to America because the United States was not at war with Nazi Germany at the time. And he prepared an affidavit, um, and and. He sent it to the vice consul in Warsaw, who might have been the same vice consul, <coughs> who didn't want to give Abe a visa. There's yeah. <laughs> a funny story about how Abe convinced them uh, to give him a visa, but they totally ignored Abe. So he couldn't, he, he, he was not unable to pull Sonia out of, out of Poland. And he said that he would sit by the radio the whole day and, and, and night, he'd read all the newspapers in, in Yiddish in, in New York City to find out what's going on in Europe. And he was besides himself because he couldn't be there to protect his family. So he's got a wife and two young children. And the, the girls, I mean, could you say, is it Lucia? Lucia, L-U-S-I-A. Yeah, 
the whole time, okay, I realized near the end I was probably in my head not saying for that. Lucia and the boy was David. 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 Yeah. Okay, so Sonia's here in Warsaw. The Nazis have arrived. And, you know, I, I just think you did a great job of capturing. You, you kind of wove back between a little bit of history, a little description, what happened next, what groups did things, and then what's happening with her. So she's with the kids. She knows her husband's in New York. And, and the Nazis are starting to crack down on Warsaw. And I think, you know, people have heard the term the Warsaw ghettos uh, for many years. You know that term exists. But this is where she ended up living. And if you can just, uh, by force, but if you can tell how, I mean, what, how the Nazis forced the Jews to do that and how they forced them to move into the ghettos. When we talk about the ghettos in Europe, we're not talking about a, a bad neighborhood which is the term often used in America, there's no comparison. There was an area that um, the, the, the Nazi invaders said that the Jews must live. So Jews who lived in other parts of Warsaw had to move into an area um, that they designated. For the Nazis designated the area. Correct. They actually forced them to help build it, didn't they? Um, not, ex not exactly, but Sonia's apartment at the time was within that area, so she didn't have to move. Okay. And in, in um, the spring of 1940, the Nazis said to, to the uh, Judenrat, that there was a, a group of uh, prominent Jews whom the Nazis forced um, to be in their position, to have some control over the people, um, to start building a wall. And the wall, that's what you're thinking of. The wall would be finished in November of 1940. And then Sonia had to move out of her beautiful apartment in the building that Abe had built. And she had to move into, I don't remember if it was a one bedroom, two bedroom apartment with another family of uh, husband and wife and, and many children. She had to uproot herself. And they had built a wall around the ghetto and made it illegal for the Jews to leave the ghetto unless they had a, a particular reason and, and some kind of uh, permission slip to get out. And um, the, the Nazis also had a, a system of bringing a small amount of food into the ghetto so that Germans um, with German heritage would get a, a reasonable amount of food. Poles would get something like, I don't remember exactly now, I think it's in the book, of 600 or 800 calories a day. And the Jews were allowed about 200 calories a day. And that's about the caloric amount that I have when I eat a cookie today. Yeah. And, yep. and you can't live on that. And the reason for that, of course, was to starve the population. Those who starved would save the Nazis from killing them later on. And, and additionally, it would weaken them. How can you fight? How can you resist when you're hungry? You can't even think clearly when you're hungry, right. let alone physical resistance. You can't think, this is wrong. What should we do about how? You can't process normally when you're hungry. Right. I, I mean, you and it's an emotional thing. It's a physical thing, too. You just, yeah. Ab okay. Absolutely. And so the, the, the Jews who could, um, lived on smuggled food and often as young children eight nine ten years old who would have coats that had pockets sewn into them and there are photos of this they would go out into what's called the Aryan in other words non-jewish area of Warsaw and beg borrow steal barter some food potatoes or whatever it was put them inside the pockets and then try to smuggle themselves back into the ghetto to help feed the the parents these are the children who are keeping the parents alive. Yeah. So then you had, so this occurred, they're in the, the portion they were forced to move to, the, the Warsaw Ghetto, and then the Nazis kept cracking down. And part of what I want to try to paint the picture of, it wasn't just physical grabbing them up and, and, and sending them off to, you know, whatever they were sent off to in the trains, we'll get to that in a little while, but it was just a mental breaking down. It was a weakening of their spirit, of their will, and all of the things I, I made notes, is, this book is so full of detail, of great detail, but made notes about the way that the laws kept closing in around the Jewish population too. You're not allowed to own your business. You're not allowed to in certain areas. You can't. You can't go places. You can't do things. And so you're just you're really isolated within the ghetto. And the community around you, 
seeing how you're being treated by the Nazis, not a lot of people are really were, were going to try to help because they were trying to steer clear of the Nazis too. I mean, it was just a a, a multifaceted attack on the on the Jewish people, and not just Warsaw, but everywhere it was happening in Warsaw. So next phase was the Nazis are are pushing it on the ghetto. At some point, they began having some people had to be were being rounded up, and there were people who were the Nazis make demands. We need X number of people. Want to talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that that's exactly the case. As you say, as soon as they came in, they seized all Jewish businesses, and they would appoint sometimes Polish, oftentimes German, uh, uh which in English means, and I forget the word now. Uh, um, like a manager, a director of the business. Um, for example, there was a brush factory, and the Jews were forced to make brushes, which they would provide for the German army. And then the, there was a clothing business. To this day, I haven't been able to figure out if Abe's shoe manufacturing company was one of what they called a, a, a shoe commando. Um, and I, I I'm sorry I never asked Abe about that, I'm sure. Yeah, but he's he gone known. now, not to mention, he, he's passed on, your father-in-law's gone now. Yeah. Right, so the Jews had no way to make a living. They would be paid, I don't remember how much, or, or perhaps in, in trade, in food, but at least they would be alive because if they were working, they often were able to avoid some of the roundups. And as you say, the Germans would tell the, um, the um, Judenrat, that they wanted to have X number of uh, Jews um, sent on trains to work. And of course, most of the time, they were not sent to work. They, they were, were told sent they're being sent to work. They're being sent to death camps. Right. Okay. Uh, it was just terrible, terrible, terrible. And we can't even imagine. And, and Sonia, never at a loss for words, nonetheless um, spoke very, um, not not in in um, big terms, but the worst she said was life was terrible. Yeah, and as horrible, as horrible, you portrayed it, what what more what more can you say? And so in in July of 1942, there was something called the the Gross Action, the 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 big um, roundup of Jews, um, where. I think it was 200,000, if I'm not mistaken, or 300,000 people from the ghetto were taken out, leaving behind a small number in the tens of thousands. And it was at that point that the Jews understood they were no longer being taken to labor camps, they were being taken to be murdered. And I talked about how um, someone had escaped from Treblinka a young man, I think in his mid to late teens, and he came into the ghetto and he, he ran from street to street screaming, Jews, wake up, they're not taking you to labor, they're taking you to your death. And Sonia said that she heard him and most of the people thought he was crazy. <laughs> Why would the Germans take people and murder them? Still not processing the level of evil. Exactly so, exactly so. And, and so in January of 1943, many of the, of the teens and, and kids in, in their 20s decided they're going to resist. They had very few weapons, they were able to smuggle in some revolvers, but when the Germans and the Ukrainian and Lithuanian friends, their heavies, meaning their um, um, Hilsvillige is the German term. Their willing helpers were mm -hmm. involved in this. And when they came in, the Jewish kids attacked them. And, and the Germans were shocked and they withdrew. But they came back and they were able to take the 8,000 Jews that um, Himmler had told them they had to remove. And, and took them to labor, mostly death camps. Now, when, when the um, Polish Home Army saw that the Jews were fighting, and they were not just going to, to the Umschlagplatz, to the location where they would be put on, on um, cattle cars to, to the camps, they were going to fight. And so when word came 
on April 18, 1943, and we just had the commemoration for the beginning of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, the Germans and the Ukrainian-Lithuanian heavies were shocked because many of them now were killed, even though many of the Jewish kids were also killed. So it was a real uprising. A real uprising, harm them, harm which the attackers. lasted three and a half weeks. And we can talk about that in a minute also, but th this was an amazing uprising. And, and when that occurred, many of the, the uh, Poles outside the ghetto who had weapons part of the home army were able to smuggle some of them in, into the to ghetto help itself. The Jews. Right. Yeah. Okay, there are so many facets. I'm trying to watch the clock and the facets of this, this story. What I, I mentioned earlier, I just briefly said something about that your mother-in-law, Sonia, was a strong woman. A couple stories were amazing. One was that, uh, that you recount in your book. One was that she at one point went out, and I can't remember what her what the timing was, but Jews at that point were required to wear the gold star if they left, if they if they were out. And she just kind of decided, I'm not wearing it. And she went out real proudly, did whatever she had to do, and came back. We can probably get that, except the story I love, too, was she was warned. Someone came and warned her, you know, they're about to round up, take all the Jews out of this ghetto, and so you should get away, escape to the countryside uh, where somebody, some relative, would take them in. And she managed to. She rented a cart, which she wasn't permitted to do, a carriage or a cart. She's acting like she belongs there. She's got her two kids. And even when some local kids, I think, jumped on the cart and were saying, hey, we saw you come out of the ghetto. We know you're Jewish. And she got all defiant and scared the daylights out of them. They ran off. Uh, I mean, she had, what's a good word, gumption? Guts. Yes, she was amazing. She, she was amazing. In, in the Warsaw ghetto, um, the Jews didn't have the yellow star. They had armbands that were white oh, yeah. with a blue Magen David, a blue star of David. And this is actually my favorite chapter in the book. I call it Thugs on a Carriage. And yes, she arranged through bribing the guards with the exit from the, um, from the ghetto and she arranged for some kind of carriage, horse-drawn carriage, to come take her to the train station. Of course, she didn't have papers. Had she been discovered in the trains, it would have been. And, and as she left the ghetto, there were young Polish hooligans called Schmalkowniki who jumped in the carriage and said to her, we know you're Jewish, give us your gold. They thought all Jews have gold. Jeez. So she said, I'm not Jewish. I came to the ghetto because I lent a friend money and she was paying me back. No, we know you're Jewish. Give us your money or else. And they said to the, to the driver, take us to the Gestapo headquarters. Yep. Yeah. So Sonia gets out and she starts screaming, police, police, police. She's the police. She's calling the police. Well, the smoke <laughs> of Nevia thinking, if she's calling for the police, she must really not be Jewish we better get out of here or they're going to arrest us. And then Sonia points her finger at the guy driving the, the carriage and says, now you take me to the train right now. And that's what he did. And to me, that sums up the character of Sonia. Yep, amazing. And then for the, I wanna jump ahead to um, what happened in um, Auschwitz, but she gets on the train, she, she safely makes it out to wherever this was, the countryside. Relatives greet her. She has her two kids with her. She's thinking, man, this is pretty good. I got out of the ghettos. She's there, I think you said three months or so. Two Something or like that. And, and then someone came and warned her that the Nazis are not coming here. They're rounding up the Jews in this village, which was outside the city, and taking them in the woods and killing them. And she realized, shoot, I gotta get back out of here. So she managed, again, because she was so determined, you can tell this story. I love it with her kids, what she arranged. Go ahead. Yes, and, and she went back to Warsaw. It's just amazing to me. She left the Warsaw ghetto to go to the countryside where she was told it was safe. They had food. The Nazis weren't there. And then she left the countryside to go back to the Warsaw ghetto. In both cases, she survived not being rounded up in the Warsaw ghetto. On the other hand, she escaped from the countryside, um, which, which saved her from, from the roundup. And there, there was a, a policeman who actually helped, and he must have been one of the Polish blue police who largely um, were terrible. They were um, 
they're real accessories to, to, to the, the Nazis. Nazis. Um, and then there was a, a Polish woman who I think traveled with the children and she traveled with this Polish policeman and they made it back to the ghetto. And of course, this was before the uprising and I don't know exactly what the date was of that. Okay, but the, the uh, story of her two children, the woman who agreed, a Christian woman agreed to take the two kids on the train, having them pose as though they were her children. Right. At least, I think the daughter was blonde and blue-eyed, it yes. looked plausible or something. Yes. Anyway, I, I love all that. So well, there are so many details in your story, but I want to turn to, so she eventually, after living in the ghettos, got and she got into a, um, a burrowed out area, some of them had tried to hide in, eventually the Nazis got them all, and off they went on a train to Auschwitz. She still has her two kids and this train car. I mean, I just think, you know, I understand that, that immersing yourself in the terror is, is not enough, it, but it's important to understand this train car is people crammed in. You couldn't even sit down and obviously one pot for any toilet uses and which no one could even get to, or if you could get to, and it was smelly and it was hot. It was a lot of people who were scared to death and she just stayed with us, stayed with her two kids. There was a woman who showed her kindness and held, because the kids being low to the ground, they're not even, they're getting less fresh air, less see where I am, because they're surrounded. So one woman volunteered to hold one of her kids and she held the other one. So she, but they get to Auschwitz. And then I, I do want you to briefly tell us, so in Auschwitz, go ahead. Well, we, we have to go back a little bit. Okay. Most, most of the Jews were deported to Treblinka, where they were killed immediately upon arrival through, uh, carbon monoxide coming from a mm -hmm. tank or, or a car engine. For some reason, Sonia was sent to Majdanek. Why? I don't know. But there are a number of people sent to Majdanek, which was mildly a labor camp. It wasn't real. It's was mostly a death camp. And Sonia was sent out to carry rocks from one side of the camp to the other. And when she was done, to carry the rocks back and back and forth like Sisyphus pushing the rock up the hill. And again, as you mentioned before, this is to break the spirit yes. of the Jews and to weaken them because you're getting almost no food. You're doing hard physical labor. If you drop dead, so much the better. There are fewer Jews. And if you manage to do it, well, we'll get you in the end anyway. So after a couple of weeks, Sonia comes back to the barracks where the women and the children were or had been, and the children are all gone. So she goes up to a guard and says, where are my children? I want to join them. So the guard smirks, hits her with some kind of rod, and says, don't worry, you'll join them soon. And then he points to the smoke arising from the crematorium and says, but you're young and strong. So first, no, excuse me, he said, you'll join them soon, but you're young and strong. First, you have to work for the Reich. And Sonia wrote, and this is where my hell really began. Yeah. So her two young, husband's still in America, two young children. Uh, she's out doing pointless labor just to make, to weaken her, moving rocks back and forth. And her two kids are taken away from her and they're, they're killed by the, in the Nazi camp. So she's in Auschwitz. A couple of stories of that. And then I want to hit, I'm trying to watch the time here because we're going to end up running out of time. Um, so she ended up being there after a variety of bad things happened, uh, volunteering to be transferred to a different camp. Uh, that was Auschwitz. She volunteered to go to Auschwitz. There was actually oh, a labor. Oh, that was Auschwitz. Yeah, volunteered from. Right. So she was sent to Majdanek with the kids Majdanek, were murdered. Yeah, okay. That was the only time she seriously thought about suicide, going to the electrified barbed wire around the camp. And her sister, Rochelle, was with her and said, no, you have a husband in America. He'll make a life for you. You'll be reunited with him. You'll have more children. And she watched over her. She held her for 24 hours to make sure Sonia wouldn't run to the electrified wire. And Sonia calmed down and and, and didn't didn't kill herself. Yeah. I but by I'm sorry. No, go ahead. By volunteering. Oh, so there's a labor shortage in Auschwitz. So a, a colonel and a major came to Majdanek to look for labor. Yeah. In retrospect, it's kind of odd, you know, that Auschwitz had a labor shortage. These are all slaves. Right. And, and most of the camps, or many of them, the, the uh, inmates, whether they were Russian POWs or Jews, worked in the um, armaments factories. And one of the things I'm interested in now that I've learned about was how 
many of the inmates, uh, Soviet POWs and Jews, worked to sabotage the armaments that they were making. But that's, Ooh, like that's another story. List. That's what Schindler's List had them sabotaging something. Yes. Yeah. And that, that's actually a, a true story. One of, one of my friends, Oren Schneider, wrote uh, a book about his grandfather and how as a teenager he uh, was sabotaging German Mauser rifles. So, um, so Sonia um, goes to Auschwitz with Rochelle and is put in, uh, oh, and, and they had smuggled a gold piece in, in Rochelle's rectum and they bribed uh, one of the people to put her um, in what was called the shoe commando. If, if you were not in one of these special work areas um, where you were ripping apart shoes, for example, to look for hidden diamonds, etc., right, yeah. um, or, or clothing or the kitchen, and, and you would go out to work doing agricultural work, the, the average time that kind of person stayed alive was, um, was six weeks. Sonia, by being in the shoe commando, survived un until the, the death march of January 1945. But, but once again, we find how, how shoes yeah. play yeah. a big role in this family. And, and what I, I want to mention is that the structure of the book is that I have a, a chapter about what's going on with Sonia in Europe and the next chapter of what's going on with um, Abe in the United States. So I alternate chapters because Abe, who was a rich man in Warsaw in um, uh, May 1939, now had no money in the United States because the Nazis, of course, froze all bank accounts in Warsaw. And what happened to Abe and the next chapter, what's going on with Sonia, these people are separated, but they always felt each other's presence. And that's how I came up with the name for the book, Separated. But they were always together in, in their mind and, minds. and in spirit, which is what kept them both alive. Yeah. So Abe turned out to be in America. <clears throat> I want to get to the Germany and how he got here in Germany. But Abe in America came from, number one, realizing at some point he wasn't going home after seven weeks. He couldn't go home. He had to learn English, which he did. He was such a good student and really worked hard at it. He ended up getting uh, some award for being such a great student. I mean, so he... Realized he to learn English, also realized if he didn't learn English, he could do nothing but manual labor, and he wanted to be, he knew shoes, that's what he knew what to do. And so he took up a business, he'd do a really good job of recounting. It isn't just overnight he woke up and all of a sudden he was a really great shoe business guy again. He went through step by step and how hard it was, and he had to work, and the way he took, uh, whatever there are, things needed for shoe manufacturing, went around different shoe stores, wouldn't you like to buy this? I mean, he just, it was a step by step by step by step process till he got himself to where he was successful in America in the shoe business again. Yes. You're going to say something? Yes, yeah. absolutely so. Yeah, it's an amazing thing. And again, testament to his character. Now, we're talking about her so much. And the reason this book is so great, number one, is because it's true. Number two, it's very revealing about what happened in Germany. And because you have history in there, how we got to the place that Hitler came to power. And there were steps along the way that could have changed things. And sometimes I think they're a little bit analogous to things happening today. Um, so I want to start with the idea that in Germany, as you know, Hitler didn't wake up one day and say, okay, here's the plan. He instituted certain programs, certain processes where, um, you know, he, in fact, I didn't even know he was a private in the army and they had described him as a psychopath. That's an amazing fact. Okay. Anyway, he's discharged from the army and he goes through politics. He eventually gets around to where um, they decide in, um, after Reichstag fire, which the Nazis did themselves, suspended all civil rights in Germany. I just want to put, stop there. Do you ever think about, you know, what if people in Germany, could they have done more before, because this was in um, February 28th of 1932, I think. Um, I think that's right. Anyway. I think it was 33, wasn't it? I can't I, I tell. Don't, yeah, I, 1933. Right, because Hitler came to power January 30th, okay. 1933. So, I mean, I just, I mean, many people must have thought this over the decades, but the people in Germany, they were not used to having a, a government telling them we're suspending all civil rights, but they 
thought it didn't matter, thought it might be dangerous to fight. I mean, do you ever think about what could have happened differently if people responded differently? Um, what, what you're saying is, is correct, of course. It was step by step, and it was a national catastrophe. The parliament building, the Reichstag, was destroyed, and as, as they normally did, they picked on someone to blame. In this case, it was a, they, they think it was mentally disturbed Dutchman. Yeah. Um, well, of course, it was Himmler and the SS which burned down the building, but they used that as an excuse, so-called fire decree, to issue all of these, you could call them executive orders. I don't remember what they called them at the time, but they sound to me like executive orders taking away people's civil liberties. Yeah, and, and related to that, and um, as they went along, once Hitler was consolidating power, um, he had the Enabling Act, which the detailed name was Law to Remove the Danger to the People and the Reich. That was March 23rd of 33. Allowed the Nazi cabinet to enact laws by itself, uh, no need for a vote of the parliament. Well, I mean, that is akin to executive orders now. I mean, I'm not saying we have an agenda like that, but the idea of representative government being slowly removed from the people by more things being done by executive order without going through the people's parliament. The Enabling Act gave dictatorial powers to the Fuhrer. Yes. And God forbid that should happen today. Yes, and then other, uh, all parties other than their party uh, became ultimately outlawed. I mean, we could talk about Zelensky in Ukraine has outlawed all other parties. So everyone, there's only one political party, it's his. And you know, I just think these historic lessons, I mean, it's why in America, I think especially older Americans who have some better sense of history, some better sense of not just Germany, but other places too, they sense danger earlier on than people who just kind of float along thinking everything will be okay, the government loves us, they're taking care of us, there must be a good reason. And I think people with some historical perspective um, sense danger sooner. You think so? Am I going where you don't want to go? I don't know. I, I'm, yeah, I'm all about, I, I'm happy to, I mean, go ahead. What, what do you want to answer? Well, it, it, it's certainly true. When, when you have a national disaster, people will allow things to happen that they normally would oppose. And we have to hope that it doesn't come to this. But yeah, I, I, I put in a lot, of, a lot of history because I think there are a lot of lessons we can learn. America is far from being Nazi Germany. But the Weimar Republic, which is what Hitler and his people overthrew, was a democracy that after the First World War. It was freewheeling. There were tons of newspapers, cabarets. Um, it had all the trappings of a democracy, and it didn't take long for Hitler and his henchmen to overthrow it. And what were the people going to do? They didn't have weapons. One of the first things the Nazis did was seize people's weapons. Yep, they didn't have weapons. And actually, I'll tell you something else I think is really notable. Um, the government, through Hitler and his team, orchestrated a cultural acceptance of isolating certain people, of making certain people into the other, into the, they're not really like us. And that was the, the orchestration. It was raising the fear among the people that somehow the Jewish population within Germany presents a danger to us, somehow they are unworthy. They orca it was psychological. Here I'm telling a psychiatrist this, you can tell me I'm wrong, but they orchestrate a, a mentality in society that just treats certain people as unacceptable, not to be treated as human, as to be culturally segregated. Agreed? Yes, that's, that's true. They were looking for a scapegoat, a scapegoat for Germany's woes for its loss of territory after the First World War, its, its requirement to pay reparations, even though recent research shows that the German economy was not in such bad shape, and, and the Germans actually were happy to have high inflation because they're paying reparations to France and, and Britain with cheaper marks, um, and they're looking for someone to blame. Um, Goldhagen, who wrote 
the, the famous book some, I don't know, 20, 30 years ago, um, wrote a big book on, on why he thought that this happened in Germany because of its long history of anti-Semitism. And uh, he got a lot of flack saying it's, it's hard to, to blame the, the entire German nation for right. what happened because every country in Europe, as I write about in the book, collaborated with the Nazis, even, even the Netherlands, even Sweden. Yeah, I actually had not known that detail, it's, um, and I can't put my fingers on it quickly in the book, but I was surprised to read that, how many other countries in some ways supported the Nazis, enabled the Nazis. Got on board, though, with anti-Semitism, the notion that you simply are going to treat a certain class of people differently, and, and, and you're just going to attribute wrong things. And one thing I, I thought was amazing is even professors in Germany began to require Jewish students in lecture halls to sit apart. I mean, universities are supposed to be the, I mean, in America they have a lot of troubles too, but I mean, they're supposed to be the place of learning for everyone, and, and you know, we in the Western civilization use the expression about the robust exchange of ideas. You're supposed to be the higher thinker. You're not supposed to be so easily drawn into bigotry and hatred because you're smart, you're professors, but they did that in Germany, and the, and the professors went along. Yeah, more than going along, I, I think that we know um, that many of the professors were ardent Nazis, and some of them had double doctor degrees, uh, had double PhDs. Many of them were attorneys, and, and, and they're fanatical Nazis. And, and some of my friends who are experts in the field say a lot of what happened in Germany started in the universities because these professors, these, these Nazi-loving um, professors and Nazis themselves who joined the party, were teaching classes about how bad the Jews were. I mean, it's staggering. And racism. Yeah, right. Ag racism against people who were not Aryans, who, who were not Germans. They were Untermenschen. They were uh, underneath human beings. Right. You know, you may not want to draw this analogy, and you can just say, I don't want to go there. But I will say this. In America, we've had in the last maybe decade or a little bit more, we've had this push toward uh, accepting the, um, the belief, the perception of America that we are systemically racist, we're culturally racist, and therefore that, there are, that, that white supremacy and, and white privilege is a is a massive problem in America, and so you have college universities. You had them start to do the check your white privilege at the door. They started to have dorms where only students of color could live. S students who are Caucasian. This was not true when I was in university, but students of uh, Caucasian students are talked down to as though you're the problem in America because you have engaged in or indulged in or benefited from you know historical systemic racism. And it, it, is, it is that, you know, culture that legitimizes, it okays in the minds of students, you can pick on certain people because of their background and not treat them as individuals, not think of them as individuals. I don't think the analogy is too wild. What do you think? I think it's very frightening to me when you read about Jewish students being afraid to wear um, Magain David's, the, the Jewish star, right. jewelry around the neck, being afraid to wear a head covering. Um, they feel unsafe at universities. Yep. This didn't happen when Gloria and I were in college many years ago. It's becoming worse. The, the um, so-called Palestinian students or other Arab um, um, Muslim students set up apartheid week and and blame Israel for all kinds of things that Israel does not do. And people who've been in South Africa know what apartheid is, and they say Israel is not an apartheid state. But they have this propaganda to go after Jews, not just Israel, but to go after Jews. And for someone who knows a lot about the history of the Nazi regime in the Second World War, it's, it's, it's terrible. It's terrifying. It's setting up, it's a pattern that's repeating itself. The, the United States is not Nazi Germany, but Germany was not Nazi Germany. 
Until it was. Until it was, right. Yep. Yeah, I just look at the time. This has been an amazing story. Quickly for our listeners, I mean, this is not a mystery book, so I will just jump to the end. So eventually, Abe and Sonia reunite in America. I mean, Sonia, true, horrific experience, but you, I, I really encourage you to read this book because you get a clearer picture of how, um, of what the struggle was day to day over years living in, in this particular case, living in Warsaw, dealing with the Nazi invasion, dealing with the ghetto creation, dealing with the shuttling off into the concentration camps, into the death camps, and the, and the bravery and the spirit they both showed. We are, uh, I just, I really thank you for writing the book. I'm going to show our happy listeners. It's called Separated Together, the Incredible True World War II Story of Soulmates Stranded in Ocean Apart by Dr. Kenneth Price. I urge you to read it. Actually, it would be a great book club. It would be a great book club book to read. It really would. I was just talking with some friends about a book club. Anyway, it would be a great one to read. Dr. Price, thank you for joining me. Thank you for the invitation. I appreciate it. Love to have you again. Okay, friends, you know what? I actually had other topics ready for today. However, I didn't get to any of them, so I will not even do my closing why it matters because all my slides would be irrelevant to what we didn't because we didn't talk about it today. But I do want to close by telling you something I mentioned at the beginning and we are launching on this show. I, Mr. Emilio, my happy producer, can put up this slide. I want you to see what it says. It says patriotswitch.com. I want you to take a, uh, either take a screenshot or if you're just listening, memorize this patriotswitch.com slash Debbie G, D-E-B-B-I-E-G. And here's a quick story. So I learned about this recently from some good friends of mine. There's a company called Melaleuca. Melaleuca is in America. They actually, they're international, they're around the world, but Melaleuca has a great thing going in America. They produce products in America with American workers, American products, American, everything about them is America. And they're a way to fight against the shipping off of jobs to foreign countries and also the way to build up the industrial, uh, the manufacturing base in America again. So Melaleuca uh, is the company that exists here. They have, I think it's two factories, but they produce all sorts of great products. And so Melaleuca is the company, Patriot Switch is the project or the mission. And I sat through several long phone calls to understand what it's all about because I, I get approached by a lot of people and don't follow up, but this I love. The Patriot Switch story is this. You can join Patriot Switch. Just go to patriotswitch.com slash Debbie G and you can order products of all kinds. And I, we ordered a big box for our first uh, order just to check all these products out. They're all made in America. They're everything from shampoo and conditioner to health food bars, to laundry soap, to cleaning products, um, really good food. And the point of it all is it is designed. It, they also have vitamins and supplements, things that people are, are very popular. They're all extremely certified, well-tested, great products and the whole point of it is you can get on board with buying products made in America by going to patriotswitch.com the slash WG is my little page within Patriot Switch but when you go there you can just look online you don't have to buy anything just go look online see if you're interested uh, in doing this my husband and I started doing this some of our friends started doing this and I love the idea. As I said at the start of the show, I come home and find more things that say made in China. I'm thinking, dang, you know, I want to try to help keep jobs in America. The other benefit of all this is that when we start to pull businesses and manufacturing away from China, you might think you're hurting the Chinese people because they manufacture a lot of things. We're taking jobs away, but it's really just the opposite. The goal of a patriotic American should be to weaken the CCP, the Chinese Communist Party, because the citizens of China are victims of their own government. They're victims of the CCP. We do not help them by buying products more made in China. All that does is enable and solidify more of the CCP control over their country. But if you make this switch, go to patriotswitch.com. You can check out the products. If you think you're interested, you just put your name in there, put your name, I think it's your phone and your email. Someone will call you and, and answer every single question you have. And believe me, I asked a lot of questions, a lot of questions, because I don't want to get on board with something that is in any way I'm not sure of. I am sure of this patriotswitch.com forward slash Debbie G. 
If you go there, you'll, all you got to put your name in, they'll call, they'll answer all your questions, and you can start ordering from them. The things come right to your home. You don't have to, you know, a lot of people, I, a friend of mine who was uh, doing this was pointing out that she uh, actually got to miss out an entire big shopping day at one of the big box stores because uh, people do spend a lot of time there. You don't have to go be with the crowd, stand in line, take time, comes right to your home. They'll take anything back you don't like, and it's all high-quality stuff. And I am, I will just tell you, very picky about shampoo and conditioner and many other products, shower soaps. I'm telling you, I love it. Lots of great choices, all manufactured in America, supporting American workers and really supporting the idea building up the idea of buy American, buy things made in America. I will tell you more about this, but at our website, americacanwetalk.org, americacanwetalk.org, we're very shortly going to have a little segment there that tells you three things I am doing to try to help America and also help people who want to support this show. One is going to Patriot Switch. Would love if you do that. The second one is to go to Patriot Mobile totally different but people love this patriot where patriot mobile is a cell phone company i now use patriot mobile it's a cell phone service company every single donation they make helps causes you would love the patriotmobile.com website also has patriot mobile slash debbie g and that's just a way you can switch your phone service patriot mobile does the same same cell towers that every other company uses you're not going to have a change in the quality of the service you get but you can know that you're giving your money to a, your monthly payment to a cell phone company that supports American causes. And actually at Patriot Mobile, if you put in Debbie G, they'll waive your initiation fee. Just move your happy little phone or buy a new phone as I did. I wanted to upgrade my phone. Go to That's another one, PatriotMobile.com. Great one to do. And the last one is, you know, I have been pushing my pillow and mypillow.com. And I'm going to tell you something, folks. I'll tell you about my pillow, make my closing shot, and we'll end the show today. Mypillow.com is also, this is the, the company that is supported by, created by Mike Lindell. At mypillow.com, you can order, and my husband, I wouldn't push one thing on you that I haven't tried myself. Mypillow.com, my husband and I have pillows, sheets, blankets, bathrobes, slippers, a whole ton of stuff. But when you go to mypillow.com and pick a, from a wide array, they're all great products, high quality products, again, shipped right to your home. When you're checking out, if you put Debbie G, Debbie G in the promo code, you get up to 66% off on everything you buy. I get a little payment and all of us are happy. And the reason I'm closing out the show and talking about all of this, I'll just summarize by saying this. I've been doing this show for almost nine years. I did on, on Salem, since I did in Salem for five years. Uh, and then I came to this lovely studio, Real News PR, Real News Communication Network. I do this show to speak up about saving America. I have never made any money. I've never been paid. My husband points out, I work harder now than I used to when I was a litigator in a major law firm in California. I work harder now. The show is about saving America. And all the speeches I do and often after shows, people say, how can I help you? How can I help you? You can certainly make a donation. Uh, because it, they actually, it's amazing. Just because they have a beautiful studio and a professional producer, they charge me money. It's ridiculous. So it, it costs money to do this show. If you'd like to help support this show, you can go to our website, americacanwetalk.org. At that website, you can sign up for our newsletter. Just right on the homepage, it's a free newsletter once a week. You can also make a donation to keep the show rocking and rolling. Uh, just on the homepage, right on americacanwetalk.org, on the homepage, subscribe to get the new letter, newsletter letter donate make a donation to keep this show rolling you can also join america can we talk um uh i'm sorry someone's texting me to remind me of something anyway uh at, you can also um at that website join america can we talk we um we the main reason to join is to support this show but it's a mere 50 dollars a year 50 and when you join, you will get a discount on our fall summit. We have our fourth annual Women for Freedom Summit coming up this year. It's November 17th and 18th. I am telling you, these are nationwide summits. We get people from all over the country coming. It's a fabulous summit, amazing speakers, and you'll get a discount on our tickets if you join America Can We Talk. But to wrap it up, I do this show to speak up about America because I deeply care about America, about our constitution, our founding promises, everything America is supposed to be. That's why I do this show. And I think patriots are really gathering together in many, many ways in this country. 
And one way we're gathering together is to make a switch to MyPillow.com. Buy some goodies there. Go to Patriot Switch and buy some things there. I mean, check out their website. Get a call. They'll explain it all. Do all that. Uh, and also make your uh, switch to Patriot Mobile. These are ways you can use your dollars in things you're going to be buying anyway, but supporting America. And they also help to support this show. That's my pitch to you. I really hope, I encourage you to tune in. I will just wrap up, uh, really going to wrap up now by saying for this show, I do it every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time. Uh, this Thursday, uh, we have a wonderful guest in studio, Frank Gaffney. He is the founder of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C., an amazing national security expert who really has been immersed in the trenches of defending America since the Reagan administration. He's a fabulous, wonderful expert. It'll be a great show on Thursday. And so, thank you very much for tuning in to America Can We Talk. My name is Debbie Georgiatis. The show is America Can We Talk. The website is americacanwetalk.org. Thank you for tuning in every Monday through Thursday at 3 p.m. Central Time to America Can We Talk, where I always talk truth about America because America matters. And I will talk to you next time. America Can We Talk? Truth About America. Can you hear-